Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. We are in week six in our series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. I have found this series to be more timely than I expected it to be. I've heard from a number of you, particularly after last week, uh, similar thoughts. And so last week was about opposition and what do we do when we disagree with the people around us and how do we handle that in a biblical way. And really, to me, what stuck out was the opportunity we have as the church to, in things that aren't super important, to maintain unity, even though we don't see completely eye to eye. And our culture needs that right now. And we have the chance to model what's possible through the gospel to the world around us. This week, as this building the wall drags on for Nehemiah, really what we see in the next two chapters, chapters five and six of Nehemiah, is persistence. It's about persistence. It's about, in the face of obstacles, keep keeping on going to meet the challenge that's ahead of you and I don't know about you but like I started out on this a couple weeks ago and I'm like I need a message on how to keep going in in the midst of challenges because that's what we're in right now as individuals and as a culture I read this um, in an article this week about um, coronavirus fatigue and so this hits us right parents lie awake their minds racing with thoughts of how to balance work with their newfound role as homeschoolers. Frontline health workers are bone tired, their nerves frayed by endless shifts and constant encounters with the virus and its victims. Senior citizens have grown weary of isolation. Unemployed workers fret over jobs lost, benefits running out, rent payments overdue. Minority communities continue to shoulder a disproportionate burden of the contagion's impact, which in recent weeks has killed an average of about 1,000 people a day. And then he says the metaphor of a marathon doesn't capture the wearisome, confounding, terrifying, and yet somehow dull and drab nature of this ordeal for many Americans. Marathons have a defined conclusion, but the year 2020 feels like an endless slog uphill in mud. Amen. It does. Uh, I was talking to the guy from the Dream Center this week, an organization locally we partner with, and he was talking about how they're having to change their plans because they ramped up initially and responded to the coronavirus thinking it's going to be two, three, four months maybe, but not five, six, seven, eight, 12 months, whatever it is. And so they're getting a more sustainable pace. And I thought that's, that's this. I was talking to my dad this week and my dad said he had a dream and in his dream, he was in his coffin. So he's, he's 77. He's getting a little older. Maybe you have dreams like that. He's in his coffin and in his coffin dead, he has a mask on. And I thought, dad, this is a perfect metaphor for what we all think right now. This will never end. Even when we're dead, it will never end. And that's, it's easy to feel like that. Um, I ran, I ran a marathon a few years ago and, um, that was, I have a general goal in life of health, so I exercise a lot. Having a specific goal is something different. When you know you've set a date that I'm going to run 26 miles, you know, God willing, then you do, there's training plans, and so you train specifically for that goal, and it's hard. It's a lot of runs. It's some really, really, it's hours and hours of running, but when you're running for hours and hours, you think, if I do this, then I'll get that, and so it's easier to persist in situations like that, but now it's hard because we don't know what the goal is, you know? We've all persisted to a goal. 
like at work, you've had a project. At school, you've had a project. And so you, you persist through something. You're trying to get a degree. And so you do the work. You want a promotion at work. And you can see the steps that you need to take. It, it's a, a, a sports season, a hobby, a financial goal that's got a reward to it, a relationship, or even a season in your spiritual life you push through. Um, and, it, and it's easier when you know what the thing is. But right now, it's hard to know what the thing is. It's hard to know when we're past COVID to whatever a new normal is because we, we've never been there before and we're not going to be sure what it looks like when we get there. And it's true of other areas, you know, in culture too with race relations. We're taking a step forward and we've taken steps forward in the past, but not everybody's going to take the step forward this time. So how do we know when we've gotten anywhere, you know, and, and what is sustainable and what it looks like moving forward? Then that's just life. So Nehemiah's situation this week I think really speaks, uh, speaks into this. And, and what, what I'm going to look at. So last week, we left off with the end of Nehemiah 4, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. God had frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. And then what happens in chapters 5 and 6 is there's four little anecdotal stories of obstacles that kind of don't come directly at him but come in from sideways and how he persists through those obstacles and then and then after that within those like what the key was that's common to each of those obstacles that allows him to um, persist through that so I'm going to go through those four stories relatively quick open your bible to Nehemiah 5 and 6 and follow along with me I'm going to read through those things quick to get through the stories and then get to the thing that holds them together Now, this is the first obstacle, and I just termed it external distractions. External distractions can keep us from persisting. Nehemiah chapter 5. There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So this is Jewish people, Israelites against Israelites, complaining about Israelites. There were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Here's what's going on here. There are, um, he goes back to Israel. There are Jewish people that came with him. There are Jewish people from rural areas, farmers that have come in to help on the project um, on the wall, but there's a famine, and so farming, farming isn't going well anyway, and they've um, got lots of kids to feed, so they need farming to happen, and they've come in to help build the wall, so they don't have as much time to farm, and then they had to pay taxes to the Persians, who ultimately are in charge of the whole area, and so they're going to take taxes. And there's rich, rich Jewish people um, who may not even be ill-intentioned people, and they're lending money to the poor Jewish people to the point where the rich Jewish people ended up taking the poor Jewish people's children into a form of slavery, like an indentured servanthood. And there's indications that some of that, when they comment about their daughters, is even a form of sexual slavery. This, honestly, with what's going on right now, I've read some stories in the last uh, few weeks about how the billionaires have doubled their billions (laughs) in the last six months. You know, like the rich have gotten richer and the people that are hardest hit by this are folks that are earning $40,000 and less, and it's similar to what's going on in Nehemiah's day. It's like the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And um, I, don't, I don't know that in the story that's necessarily anyone's fault. You know, it's the system is the system, but I don't know that that's good. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that in the second obstacle and talk about how that relates to what's going on right now. But for Nehemiah, he sees this, and it's the type of thing where, like, 
he's got his people, like they face down the bad guys, they're locked in on the project. You know, in baseball terms, they're, they're rounding second and heading hard towards third or rounding third and heading towards home. And all of a sudden this happens to knock them off track. It's almost like if you've seen one of those videos where a drunk fan comes in from the stands and like tackles the guy between second and third base. That's a bit what it's like. And you're like, what just happened? And Nehemiah, I think, is like, what just happened? And COVID for us is like all the fans in the stands got drunk and tackled us on the field as we're playing the game. That's what COVID feels like to me. So Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, I took counsel with myself. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. I held a great assembly against them and said, we, as far as we are able, we've brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Like we're trying to restore our identity and dignity as a people, and here you are making money off the whole thing and keeping us from achieving that. And then the next line is this, they were silent and they could not find a word to say. That is Hebrew for busted, just busted. You know you're busted when there's no response. I have, right now, I have three teenagers in my house. It's great. It was just, I think I was always a little bit scared of the teenage years, but I love the teenage years and I love my teenagers and they're great. But, but it's rare when you bring an accusation against a teenager that you get silence in return. There is always, a res- always a response of some form, right? You're really busted when you got nothing to say. And so Nehemiah says, the thing that you're doing isn't good. Stop it. <laughs> Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending the money and grain. Let's us abandon this exacting of interest, return to them their fields, their vineyards, their orchards, their houses, the money, the grain, the wine, the oil, all of it, give it back. And they said, okay. You know, they said, we will restore these things and require nothing of them. We'll do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised, I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. Like, you know, swear to God, hope to die, hand in a Bible, and Nehemiah is not a guy to be trifled with. And the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord and the people that is their promise. So he gets an obstacle, sideways energy, persists through it, keeps on going towards the goal. That's obstacle number one. Number two, I would term internal exhaustion can keep us from persisting. So, This is what he says next. The former governors, and he's technically the governor in Persia's stead of of, uh, Judea, this, this region. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. 40 shekels of silver, apparently, when you just equate it to what it was in terms of wages in the day, is like 10, maybe $20,000 a day that he could have gotten in part to provide for his household, but in part just to put in his pocket. And you know, that's how it works. But he decided not to take the 10 or $20,000 a day because he feared the Lord. Uh, he says, I persevered in the work on this wall. We acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, at my table, there were 150 men, some Jews, officials besides those who came from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense, at my expense each day, was one ox, six sheep, and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine and abundance. Yet, for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. So he looked around and saw what was going on with the people and decided to personally sacrifice what he had coming to him, even though the system let him take advantage of that. Let me 
come back to what I said a minute ago. This is another sermon for another day. It's not specifically related to this, but is it okay to take advantage of what the system allows you to take advantage of, you know, in a circumstance like this? And, and I've thought about this a lot over the last few days. The system is amoral. Like our system, capitalism, I think is an amoral system. It's not immoral and it's not moral. It depends on the morality of the people that play in the system. And Nehemiah, I think, would say his morality told him not to take advantage of everything that the system allowed him to take advantage of, but instead to be generous to the people around him. Again, another sermon for another day, but, but it required sacrifice of him. What he, the fear of the Lord required sacrifice of him. Any project you work towards, especially one that God calls you to, is going to involve personal sacrifice, anything. And personal sacrifice over time takes a lot of persistence. And you know this, you know, you have a project at work and your boss says, hey, we all, we got to go all in for the next whatever period of time is, and everybody goes all in and sacrifices. Now that can't, you know, it can last weeks or maybe months, but it can't last years or forever because it ends up not being sustainable. But we, you know what that's like. You get called into the ministry of the gospel. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you were called into the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the church, right? Um, it's going to require personal sacrifice. And a lot of you sacrifice significantly, whether that be financially or with your time or whatever it is. And there are days when you think, man, is this worth it? I could be doing, you know, this with that money or this with that time. And so it's, you've got to persist. If you are in a relationship with another human being for more than, say, like five minutes, it takes persistence, whether that be a roommate, a spouse, a sibling, a child, a good friend, the people at church. You have times where you think, I'm putting in more than they are into this, and you have to persist through this. So that's an obstacle for Nehemiah, and he pushes through it. Third one, repeated opposition. Repeated opposition can keep us from persisting. So the same guys from last week make another run at him. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I'd built the wall and that there was no breach left, uh, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hecathirim on the plain of Anno. So let's go meet in this remote place. Now, Nehemiah is not a dumb guy. Like, he knows it's not a good idea to go meet in some remote place with his enemies. Makes me think of Sonny in the toll booth in The Godfather. Like, and it, that's what he's thinking about. And so he, he realizes, he says, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should I stop? Well, I leave it and come down to you. And they sent to me four times this way and I answered them four times in the same manner they just keep persistence they just keep coming you know he's human that wears you down after a while would you just stop what do I need to do to get you to leave me alone and all of us at various times in our life have had people like that or maybe even been people like that at some point where we just persist and and someone's like stop I need you to stop in the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And you can read through this as I'm talking, but, but basically it's the same accusation, but worse as, the la as last week, that he wants to be the king over Judah, and, and in fact that he has put a prophet out there, a false prophet that Nehemiah has, saying that God wants him to be the king, and they just won't stop. And so I sent to him, Nehemiah says, saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. Stop making things up. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. It will not be done. 
but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. So that's the third one. And the fourth one is this, when teammates um, leave, that can keep us from persisting. So last little bit in this, Nehemiah 6, um, verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, and these are all Jewish, Jewish folks, Jewish names, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God. Let's meet in the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. And so he repeats it. They're coming to get you. They're coming to get you. And that's significant. Like he's trying to scare him. And Nehemiah's like, this, is, this doesn't make sense. Like this communication, sometimes you know when your patterns of communication with someone are, are not normal, and it just sends up, you know, your radar, and that's what happens here. He said, I said, should a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I'm not doing that. And I understood, he said, I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. This guy turned on him, sold out a guy on his team, and was trying to sabotage him. That is the hardest type of obstacle opposition to persist through is when you feel like the people that are on your team aren't on your team anymore. And so he says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. You get it? Like, he's got all these things working against him, getting the thing that God called him to do, getting it done. All these things are working against him. Have you, can you think of a time in your life when you quit? Can you think of a time when you quit? And I don't, I don't say that to evoke shame, although the memories for me of things that I quit evoke shame. But Jesus has died on the cross to take, or he's hung naked on a cross in our place to take our shame away, and so that's not why I do it. But I do do it to give some perspective on wherever you might be right now. And so it could have been a project, it could have been a team, it could have been a relationship, a family, a goal. You know, you could have just gotten to a place of like the people around me aren't on board or I can't keep myself on board the way I need to be on board or the opposition's never going to give up or we're just never going to get there. And I'm not saying there aren't times when God wants you to move on from something, uh, but a lot of the time that's not what's going on, you know? And I think we know that. I, um, I think just when you look at movies in our culture, there's probably like five real movie themes and every movie fits into those themes. So there's like the dystopian movie about the end of the world and so, so many, the Hunger Games, so many movies and TV shows fit into that theme. There's the, the character redemption theme. And so my favorite movie ever might be Cars, for real, because Lightning McQueen gets redeemed as a character and at the end when the Hudson Hornet is his crew chief, it just kills me every single time. There's the theme, the vengeance narrative, where someone has done something so bad that we can justify anything we want to do and all our rage comes out. That is every Liam Neeson movie ever made fits into that theme. There's the guy gets the girl or the girl gets the guy or whatever it is. That's every Hallmark Channel movie and so many other movies. But our favorite storyline might be the underdog story. The odds are stacked against them, but they just won't quit, right? dun dun da dun da dun da dun I'm doing this to an empty room. Dun 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 boom boom. Like it's it's Rocky. It's like the classic American story. It's it's Rudy. 
It's the Karate Kid. It's Cool Runnings. It's Remember the Titans. It's all those movies. It's the Miracle on Ice. It's that hockey, Jim, the goalie, Jim Craig, skating around the ice with the American flag on him, looking for his dad. There's nothing more American than that. It's, it's uh, Jimmy V running around the court looking for someone to hug in 1983 after NC State wins the national championship. It's Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson. It's the Bad News Bears. Let them play. It's that story. That's Nehemiah. This is the story. They are the underdogs. Everything is stacked against them. Are they going to keep going or will they quit? Who's going to win? Is it these Jewish people that have just lost sight of the project and they're taking advantage of the situation? Is it the enemy that just seems like they're never going to give up? Is it the internal you know, resistance that Nehemiah faces of, can I keep doing this? That's the story. Man, over the last few years, some of you at Oak City Church have been this story. And I and we have watched things happen and prayed like, God, would you stop like letting them go through this and wondering, are they going to persist or are they going to quit? And you've kept going, you know? It's, it's, it's our favorite story. I keep mentioning this biography of Ulysses S. Grant that has taken me forever to finish because it is so compelling because he's that story. He, uh, he got into West Point, and everyone's like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And then he ends up fighting in the Army for the Mexican-American War and, and has some success, but then drinks himself out of the Army after that war's over because he was an alcoholic his entire life and then fails at a series of odd jobs until right when the Civil War starts, he's working in his dad's, like, tannery. This is the mid-1800s. You know, as a clerk, and the Civil War starts, and he's like, well, I can do that. I can be a soldier and waits to get you know, conscripted back into the army at the rank that he deserves. And then he saves the country like he's the Union general that gets it done and then becomes the president of the United States. <laughs> like, it's the ultimate story. You know, I, Churchill is one of my favorite characters because Churchill, for all his ambition early in his life, it didn't go super well. And it was a series of bumbling, like, not going well. And in the 1930s, Churchill's the only one in England that is saying, Hitler is a monster. We cannot give in to Hitler. Hitler is a monster. We cannot give in to, in to Hitler. And then at the end of the 30s, when Hitler has all of Europe and everybody realizes he's right, they're like, okay, you're in charge. But it's too late. But he just doesn't quit. And so he has great quotes. This is one of his quotes. If you're going through hell, keep going. That's a great quote. He's got another one. He says, success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> That's a great quote. And then he says, never give in, never give in, never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. He has the speech. I'm going to read the end of it. It's only going to take me a minute, but it's after Dunkirk. It's the beginning of World War II, but it's when they got 300,000 British soldiers off the French shore across the channel by telling everyone in England that has a boat, hey, just get over there and get a couple soldiers. No one thought it could be done, but it was done. And then in Parliament, he ends his speech by saying this, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old world. 
Every time I read that, the hair on my arm sticks up. And this is the story. Will we persist? I don't know. I don't know what that is for you. I know it's something. We're all persisting through something. What is it that you want to quit right now? You know, maybe it's just COVID life. Like, I'm done. Uh, Man, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a friendship. And quitting, you know, doesn't necessarily mean like shutting down and falling into a depression or even leaving. Quitting can be settling for what is and not moving towards what God wants to be. Uh, Not keeping going. Now, in these four examples of things that he persists through, like you read in there and you, you find one word that pops out in each one of them. This is the first one when he's talking to these rich Jewish people taking advantage of the situation. I said to them, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? The second obstacle, when he's talking about the things that he's doing, he says, but I did not do so because of, I didn't take advantage of what I could because of the fear of God. And that is not a God is going to zap me, fear of God. That is a God is bigger than me, fear of God. That is God is smarter than me. Uh, He's better than me. He's called me into this. And if he called me into this, he's going to provide a way to get through this. And it's dangerous to follow your own judgment when God has made his judgment about a matter clear. So those are the first two. And then the last two um, with his, these guys that keep coming back at him, he said they all wanted to frighten us. It was about fear and manipulation and just put him in a place where they were too afraid for, of their circumstances to go on. And then the last one about the guys on his team, for this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. It's fear. What do you fear? What do you fear? Do you fear God more than your circumstances? Or do you fear your circumstances more than God? Which is bigger in your mind, in your heart, in your soul? Is it your scary circumstances around you? And they are scary, right? Or is it your God in heaven above you? And every single one of us battles this. (laughs) This is part of why I say, time and again, we need to spend more time in, in God's word on just a consistent basis, like routinely, day after day, letting him speak. What, however little it is, spend, get in a routine. Worshiping. Um, when we worship, it, as, a, as you worship as a family on Sunday mornings, worship. Like, belt it out. Let that part of you connect with the Lord. Get in your car, find some worship music, sing loud and off-key if you have to, but like connect with that part of you. Pray to the Lord on a regular basis and communicate with other folks that are following Jesus because we need that. We need that. And we need there to be more of that than time on the internet because the internet's a scary place and like people around us want us scared and the devil wants us scared in this midst. Um, What are we scared of? And I'm trusting that God has put something on your mind that you're thinking, oh, this thing, whatever it is, it's never going to happen. We're never going to get there and you want to quit, but you're not supposed to. You're supposed to persist. So, I'm going to read just a handful of verses from a handful of stories. This is going to be quick. So ideally, really what I want you to do is close your eyes and just let me read this over you. They're not going to flash up on the screens, but they're just God's, like, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, speaking to us about fear. So Abraham, 
in Genesis chapter 15. This is a few years after he got the call. He goes to seek the promised land, and he's not sure that it's going to happen. And God says to Abram, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Fear not. Uh, Hagar, who is his wife's maidservant, when they think, like, this is not happening, so we need to make it happen on our own. He has a child with Hagar named Ishmael, and then they kick her out when they have um, Isaac. And then she's scared, and Ishmael cries out, and God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Isaac, Abram's son, when he's in a dispute over the promised land, God appears to him and says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Rachel, his wife, when she was in labor, it was at its hardest. The midwife said, fear not, for you have another son, Joseph, you know, who's betrayed by his brothers. When they find out, oh man, now he's the boss of us. He's in charge, and they're scared. And he says to him, fear, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Do not fear, because I fear God more than I fear my circumstances, and so you don't need to fear because I fear him. The burning bush episode in Exodus with Moses is just one big long, do not fear Moses, but get about the work I've called you to. Moses, to the people of Israel, when they're facing down the Egyptians, says, fear not, stand firm, and you will see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And again, 40 years later, when they're going into the promised land, he says to them, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of the people of the land, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. And he will not forsake you. Joshua, taking them into the land, says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Boaz, to Ruth, in that story. Now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you all that you ask. David, over and over and over again, David in the Psalm, Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is bigger than anything that I could be afraid of. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Again in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though there are scary things around us, we will not fear. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tr be tr tremble at its swelling, we won't fear because God is our refuge and our strength. David to his son Solomon, then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. The Lord to Israel before they go into exile, fear not for I'm with you. Don't be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. The Lord to Israel when they are in exile, fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, fear not, for I am with you. Zechariah, chronologically the last book in the Old Testament. O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel to the shepherds, you know, Christmas Eve, the angel said to him, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Jesus, to everyone, all over the place, but in this passage in Luke, fear not, little flock, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, 
where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul, um, in his letter to the Romans, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have a father that is in charge of things, and so we don't need to be afraid. Paul, again, to Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. That's what he gave us. And finally, John, in the book of Revelation, when he has this vision of God on his throne, I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. I am bigger than anything you might be afraid of. In Proverbs, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And this is Isaiah. This is how Isaiah describes Jesus in a prophecy of the coming Jesus. He said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And this is Jesus. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, and a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. It's not his circumstances that are going to dictate that. It's the fear of the Lord. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I get a handful of things out of that, right? Everyone in the Bible is afraid. Everyone in the Bible is afraid at some point, and all of us are afraid. And part of this is just, man, call it out. Admit whatever it is that you're scared to death of right now. It's okay. Everyone is. God knows every one of us is afraid. God doesn't want us being afraid. Uh, Being afraid is an awful way to live, and God knows it. And so he doesn't want us to be afraid. So he tells us over and over and over again, you don't need to be afraid, right? And God tells us to tell each other not to be afraid. So many of those stories I read were not, not God directly through an angel, but one person telling another person, in the name of God, you don't need to be afraid. And we need each other. We need each other. If there's somebody that you just know is disconnected, we need each other so badly right now and to remind each other of that. And the reason we don't need to be afraid is that God is bigger than anything that we are afraid of. You know, whatever it is, whatever it is in life, we need persistence. I think we need it probably especially right now, but whatever it is, it's going to take persistence. You want to be married for 50 years, you're going to need to persist, you know. You want to make something happen at work, you need to persist. You want to be a good parent, you're going to need to persist. You want to, to be a part of a church for an extended period of time, persistence is something that you're going to need. And ultimately, I think persistence is tied directly to worship. It's tied directly to worship. It's not stuff that we don't know, but we're not made to, to hear about how big God is and then just to never think about it again. We're made to, on a routine basis, that weekly together and daily on our own, to, to make God big, to remind ourselves how big he is through his word and through prayer and through worship, to exalt him, to magnify him in our souls so that we know that he's bigger than our circumstances and we fear him more than we do the things around us. And ultimately, we know that as much as any other reason because of the cross, 
because of Jesus, because Jesus is in the garden and says, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And I don't know if Jesus is scared in that moment or not. I know we would be, but I don't think he was because he knew his father so well. And he knew that even when things were at their darkest, God was in complete control. And that's a reminder that that's true, that when things just look lost, God is still in control. And then in the midst of all that, all of that speaks to the great love he has for us and the plan that he has for you. Father, thanks for this story and thanks for these words. And um, God, I'm thankful for more than that, that over and over and over and over and over again, in seemingly every story in the Bible, someone's afraid and they need to hear, fear not. And so it's okay to be in that place where we need to hear that, Lord. Uh, but we need to be reminded that you are bigger than whatever it is that's going around around us. And I know people um, in our church, and I'm sure people that are just tuning in, have lots of big things going on around them that are scary things, Lord. And there's reason to be scared. Lord, may we press closer to you this morning and this week and in the coming weeks and months, Lord. May you be bigger in our minds than the things that are going on around us. May you grow our dependence on you. May we develop better routines of just staying in touch with you and having the relationship with you that we're made for, God. And may you replace our fear of the thing around us um, with just a knowledge that you are bigger and we can trust in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.